I was going out and listening for what's the most abundant herb out here. I wasn't taking such a linear or one-dimensional approach. It was holistic, but I was also considering like what is speaking to me. You're listening to The Plant Love Radio, episode number 54. Welcome to Plant Love Radio, a place where you'll discover how to create a balanced, vibrant, and resilient life through the wonders of herbal medicine. I'm your host, Lana Camille, a college professor, drug information pharmacist, and an herbalist. You'll love my amazing guests, herbal teachers, clinicians, medicine makers, growers, and artists. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Let's get the show started. Hello, friends. Much of my herbal medicine journey is connected to learning about plants that were either cultivated or wildcrafted and sold to me by other companies. I wanted to take you into a different direction today with my guest, John Slattery. John is a practicing bioregional herbalist, educator, author, and forager, helping people to develop deep and meaningful relationships with wild plants. His work has been widely influenced by indigenous plant healers from throughout the Americas, herbalist Michael Moore, and most importantly, the plants and wild places of the Sonoran Desert. John has founded several foraged herbal products and food companies, Desert Tortoise Botanicals and Desert Forager. And about 10 years ago, he started Sonoran Herbalism Apprenticeship Program. In today's episode, we'll talk about reasons why Sonoran Desert in Arizona is one of the most botanically diverse places in North America and what does it really mean for bioregional herbalists like John. What are some of the examples of desert plants that he employs sustainably in his formulas and why tapping into the heart is one of the most useful guides he recommends for anyone thinking about foraging. John is an author who has written two books about Southwest foraging and medicinal plants, and his second and newest book is being given away as a part of this episode's raffle. So to enter the giveaway or find links to all the resources mentioned in today's episode, please head over to the show notes at plantloveradio.com slash 54. Enjoy. John, hello. How are you doing? Doing wonderful today, Lana. Thanks for having me. Really excited. Thank you for joining me today. So, uh, John, you're an herbalist, you're a forager, you're an educator, you're a writer, so many different hats. I wanted to start our conversation by asking you about your journey. How did it actually begin? How did you become interested in herbal medicine? Mm. Well, really, uh, I think uh, a great way that I can begin to frame that picture is talk about where I'm at right now. Mm -hmm. Because where I'm at right now is a place that I didn't really clearly see, but it was um, the, the foundational pieces of the philosophy were being laid as I was being drawn into herbalism as a young man in my early 20s. Uh, so it wasn't something that I was raised with. This wasn't in my family, in my community, or really anywhere in my awareness. Um, honestly, I don't recall using herbs at all in my youth. Might have had some chamomile tea here or there. That was the extent of it, if at all. So um, just coming from where I'm at today, I, I have been using the phrase bioregional herbalist uh, to describe what I do as an herbalist for some time. For a while, I used the term uh, Sonoran herbalist because it really spoke to the place, but I wanted to bring these ideas to a wider audience that didn't just pertain to this specific place on the earth where I've been at for about 15 years. But uh, and as I started to um, suss out these basic principles and concepts that were the the founding uh, the foundation for being a bioregional herbalist, I I thought this would be something I could I could bring to people all over. And I recognized that people were looking for this either intuitively or they got glimpses of it and they wanted to go deeper. So that's largely what I've been doing for the last three years is bringing this culmination, this amalgamation of all these experiences that I've had related to herbs or indirectly related to plants and, and bringing it into this concept of bioregional herbalism. 
So when I first started using herbs, I really only knew them as products on, on a shelf, you know, capsules even. So I, I did not have any sort of living relationship with plants. This was uh, still uh, nascent within myself. And um, it, took, uh, it took me to leave behind a lot of, uh, of my lifestyle at the time and, and where I'd come from to really create the space to be open enough in my eyes and my heart to see that. And what resulted was uh, me spending uh, a great deal of time in Central America and out into South America for, for over a year in, in my 20s. And on that journey, I continuously came up uh, to meet people involved with plants or people who were reflecting to me that that was my role uh, as a, as a you know, didn't even say herbalist per se, but somebody who knew plants. That's what I kept receiving from a variety of all indigenous elders uh, from Mexico. People were North American indigenous people and all the way down to Brazil. And, um, and during that time, what I started to notice was that these people had relationships with the plants around them. And then it started to dawn on me that, you know, this very likely was passed down to them from you know, the elder generations and then from their elder generations. And then, you know, how long had these people been here? You know, I still don't think that archaeologists or anthropologists necessarily have a really clear idea of that because it's often in stark contrast to what, what the people say uh, themselves about you know, how long they've been in a place. So we, we could be talking about thousands, if not tens of thousands of years. So it's a deeply felt, intimate relationship. And for those people who I met that had not yet been, um, well, I, I shouldn't say that they had not yet been colonized because they very well may have been colonized in the past, but they had not most recently been colonized by any Europeans. And they had uh, some sort of indigenous language that they were practicing and interwoven within that language was a knowledge of the landscape and the plants. And then it occurred to me that I really, I really couldn't fully understand their relationship with plants and healing and the landscape without being raised within that language, let alone, you know, or even being aware of that language, let alone being raised within the language as they had been. So that was at least the beginning of me understanding what I didn't know. And by accepting and understanding to an extent of what I was ignorant of, I think it created a, a bigger space within my awareness and my consciousness to be, to be more open to receive a new set of uh, a new vocabulary that was coming from a whole new direction of gaining knowledge that was centered not so much in, in books, but was through direct experience and coupled with uh, an oral lineage, you know, uh, uh, teacher and apprentice sort of relationship. So that's really how I started learning about plants was, um, Happening to, I was ha I happened to be introduced to a herbalist midwife in Guatemala, in the area called Los Cuchumatanes. They're the highest mountain range in between the Andes in Peru and um, and central Mexico. And there's a, a high concentration of uh, what they locally call in Spanish shamanes or or healers, uh, medicine people. And this uh, this elder, she she started taking me around and showing me. Um, plants that were edible, plants that were used for medicine. We would visit uh, someone's home in the village who was ill, and I would witness her massaging the woman's belly um, and uh, employing herbs, giving them uh, recipes or, or you know, handing them the herbs and showing them how to make them and telling them how often they had to, had to prepare it to administer it. And so this was, this was extremely enlightening for me. There was something about it that was very familiar at the same time. Yet, you know, in this in this life, I hadn't seen anything like that. But it resonated it resonated deeply with me, and I started to see like this is this is what um, herbalism is about. I don't even think I could articulate it in that way back then. But you know, fast forwarding um, about five years or so, uh, and finding myself here in Arizona and having been in Tucson for a couple few years at that point and really reconciling that this is what I was dedicating my my life to was learning about plants and developing relationship with plants. 
I started to now see these experiences in a whole new light from the reflection of my experiences now. So in a sense, it was, it was a quintessential um, you know, apprenticeship-like learning experience in that not all the details are given when you're shown when you're given knowledge or, or given an experience, it's not, you're perhaps not ready to fully understand it. But as I continued on the path, I started to see these, these experiences in a whole new light. So it was, it was uh, very informative for me in my foundations of becoming a bioregional herb, bio herbalist, um, if for no other way to, to, to illustrate to me what it's like to have a living relationship with your local landscape and the plants within it. Um, and then certain elements of, of uh, vitalism or how people heal through the regenerative force that is within themselves, unlocking that or um, connecting with it in the local landscape, you know, where certain canyons had more of this healing power. So that's where the local healers would take their, their patients and they would utilize rhythm with drums and they would utilize plants and they would use, utilize chanting. So there's many different layers to their approach to healing and all of that was uh really fascinating to me and then you know there's so many different ways to go with herbalism and what what's really what it's really come down to and as you pointed out i think in the introduction i've, I've done many different things I, i've worked as a as a teacher i've been wild crafting i've been making herbal products i've been working as a uh, as a, uh, a clinician you know, intimately with individuals for years or quickly in a community clinic type setting. And ultimately what I feel is most important for me to, to give and what I have to offer as, a, as an herbalist is to introduce people to wild plants and to have them uh, and to facilitate a deep uh, experience for them. Uh, by deep, I mean they're accessing a part of their sensory organism to have a discussion with the landscape to have a discussion with with plants and that could mean something that's like us talking right now or something that transcends our concepts of 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 language and and speech that is so beautiful. Um, John, I want to take you back just a little bit. When you were traveling in South America, you had dreams of coming back to Arizona. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Why Arizona? Why were you so drawn to this particular place? True. Yeah, that's, that's where I jumped ahead several years. So jumping back with you, um, I was in Brazil by that point, and it was becoming quite clear to me that Herbs were important and in, my, in my future, not just utilizing for my life, but this is something I have to study more deeply. I had, um, I had tried to avoid it. I had tried to sidestep it and you know, uh, entertain other curiosities, but it kept popping up everywhere that I went. And um, I had been, in fact, um, studying permaculture and agroforestry in Brazil and had spent some time on a couple of big farms where we we're Im Im implementing this work. And I was learning about plants in Brazil, learning about edible medicinal plants, visiting a lot of places. And I had uh, met some friends that uh, were more than friends. They were like family to me. And I was living with them on the outskirts of, of Brasilia. They had, uh, it was, uh, I guess, the, the beginnings of a favela, if you're familiar with that description of a makeshift town and on the outskirts of town and they were indigenous people from the northeast of Pernambuco uh, from the uh, Funio Tapuya tribe and I just happened to meet them uh, well let me let me take a step back before I, I answer your question because there's another interesting story on how I came to meet uh, Toe was his name he was uh, a man who worked with herbs and lived his traditional way of life through dance and song as a means of supporting his family in Brazil, traveling around and, and doing this, and also traveling to Europe uh, on occasion to perform. But a couple of uh, mutual friends of ours who were attempting to form a relationship with he and his brother uh, to do some work there on, on the earth, they um, 
they went to his camp one night and I stayed home at, at my friend's apartment. I was actually researching herbal medicine programs in the Southwest, beginning, con- beginning to consider this idea of coming back. And um, Tawei had said to the woman who, who arrived, uh, where's the other one? And she said, what do you mean the other one? She's like, there's another one with you. Where is he at? Bring him here. And nobody had mentioned to him anything about, about me or that there was another person. And um, she was, she was um, open enough to listen to him and, and U-turn right around, came back home. And, and as soon as she came in, she was excitedly saying, he asked for you. He asked for you. And something uh, kind of a, like a shiver went down my spine and I said, okay, I'll go with you. And uh, when I arrived at their camp, it was already dark past sunset and um, he had a little fire going at his camp and we sat by the fire and he came to me and he was uh, smoking a corncob pipe with tobacco and began um, uttering some prayers in his native language and was uh, blowing tobacco all around me. And... Um, and we embraced, and he sat back down at his, his side of the circle around the fire, and he told me everything's going to be all right. Things are going to get better. And from that point on, we were like brothers. And uh, it saddens me to this day that I had to leave him behind, but one day when he was gone traveling, and I was staying there with his family at the little favela that he had built, uh, I watched the sunset. I watched the sunset over Brasilia. And something told me that I needed to come back, needed to come back. But the three or four days leading up to that, I had woken up each day with Tucson, Tucson, Tucson echoing in my head. And this was the last place that I had been before I I walked over the border, uh, really, you know, intending to never come back, to be honest. I had a vehicle that I had signed off to my friend, had given it away, and I had two backpacks, and that was it. And... um, I was emptying myself out in, in, in all manners of, of thought and physical form and was just uh, letting go of everything that I could possibly let go of. Yet there was something about being here that I couldn't let go of apparently. And um, um, Tuei was one of the people who was strongly encouraging me to work with plants. I had helped out with uh, he and his brother's herb shop in the uh, Funai building in Brasilia. Funai is like the BIA of, of Brazil. And so indigenous people from all over the country would come there and, and, uh, and sell their wares. And so I would meet a lot of these people coming from all over, all over Brazil, and we would often talk about plants. And he and his brother would take me out into the forest when I needed something, and we'd gather some tree bark, we'd make some medicines. And, um, and so that, that was all really difficult for me to let go of because I felt this was the direction that it, I was ready to go, but nonetheless, I felt like I needed to come back here. And I did, and um, the first several months of being here, I was distraught, thinking, what, what kind of mistake did I make? I was out living in nature for over a year and engaged with plants on, on a deep level and, and meeting people like this, and now all of a sudden, I'm, I'm back in a city, uh, needing to find a job to pay rent. And so um, that really turned me upside down for a while, but... What I didn't realize yet in coming back here is that um, Tucson and the area around Tucson is some of the richest area for floral diversity in North America. Uh, Tucson uh, is in Pima County, and Pima County has the second largest flora uh, of any county in North America, second only to San Diego County. So um, that you know, I, I started to learn more about as time went on, but it was almost it was. Uh, it was a matter of having these aha moments in the years to come where I realized, you know, there was some wisdom, there was some intelligence in these inspirations that I received um, to do all of these things that I did. In many ways, I had to take this long, circuitous route that was very uh, difficult at times, but um, it was a process of forming, forming me into what I needed to become to, to really be a vessel to receive uh, this knowledge and be able to share it with people for their own personal healing or for those that were now coming up not too far behind me that were feeling similarly inspired to relate with the plants around them but you know didn't have that inspiration to go out and do it themselves. When I was looking for someone like that when I came back here, I didn't really find anything quite like that. You know, no one had that, that sort of relationship with plants that these 
indigenous people that I met had, you know, and that was, you know, offering themselves to the community to teach. Eventually, I did meet meet people like that, but at first not. So I realized I had to begin cultivating that within myself. So my school initially was going out into the desert, going out up into the mountains and the forests and spending time observing, listening. I realized by spending time with the indigenous people that that was how you learned. You didn't just ask questions to get knowledge, but you you observed. You spent time listening and feeling. And there was something that was deeper than any knowledge that could be passed to you through a book or even through a most intimate teacher's words to you. But it was about your felt relationship with the landscape and the plants and everything that is living. And I find that still is, is the most important thing in, in a sense. Uh, that relationship I see is where herbalism begins and ends. And everything in between is, is you know, s- relatively superficial to that. You know, in, in a... Um, yeah, so as, as someone moves away from that point of origin, which in a holistic sense is also to where we'll return, it becomes progressively more superficial or more in the realm of, of ideologies and, and theory. But the, the intimately felt experience is something that is almost ineffable, that is, uh, comes from a depth within oneself that you know, if we we're to categorize it masculine or feminine, it's certainly more of a feminine understanding. Very, very interesting. When you came back, and so you're in Arizona, and you're looking at the plants in Sonoran Desert, at some point you decide that you would like to educate others and also to potentially make products uh, from some of the plants that grow locally. So in 2005, you start a company. And I know that the three guiding principles for the company are high-quality handcrafted medicines that are made in small amounts, small batches, and active stewardship of plants and authenticity. And I wanted to ask you to talk about the reasons why these criteria were so essential for you when you were starting this. Mm. And it's, yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that. I would say it's more so that those were, those were essentially part of my process of working with plants, certainly an authentic relationship. And really the business came not out of an idea to create a business, but really as a need to support this spiritual path that I was on. That's truthfully how it came out. And at some point, I realized I have quite an apothecary here that I've developed, you know, amassed over a couple of years of tinctures and, and bulk herbs. I need to get this to people. And so the next step was um, to get, you know, get a spot at my local farmer's market, and that required a business license. So there the business was born. Okay. And so I, in a sense, initially, I almost saw the business as a formality to integrate this work with more people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there I started to learn the lessons of creating a business gradually and painfully (laughs) of how to create products. I really, I showed up initially with a bunch of jars of herbs and maybe a few tinctures. Um, A friend might have even helped me with a logo at that point just so people could recognize me. But uh, I had the idea that I would bring these herbs, people would come to me and say, I've got this problem or that problem and I would give them the herbs. And then occasionally it worked that way, but... I started to realize quickly that, you know, vast majority of the people were so divorced from that sort of idea of, you know, asking someone for help, you know, to be treated with herbs. Um, so for the most for the most part, I, I witnessed people who were about a generation or two older than me coming. To, they would see what I was doing, and they would share with me, "Oh yeah, my my auntie, my nana, my tata, my tia used to, you know." Give us a stafiate for stomach aches. Oh, it tasted horrible. That stuff was so bitter. You know, so there was there was a chasm I identified quickly between, you know, where I was at and where some of the people that were interested in natural healing were at and the vast majority of, of the local population. So I started to create products for those people who were interested, like, you know, cut you know, a, ski, a healing skin salve for cuts and, and wounds and, and an arnica muscle balm. Some of the things that are certainly more obvious, but it was really a, a product of listening to people and then say, okay, well, I can make something for that. And, um, and th- so that's how, that's how the business came about. 
Um, uh, there was another interesting part of your question there that I'm not remembering. What else did you you ask me in in regards to um, teaching? Was that what you said? So I was asking you about like different yes. aspects of it. So whether it is making things in small amounts or authenticity, you mentioned that, and the just active stewardship of plants. Mm-hmm. Right. So whenever I went out, it wasn't just uh, I didn't just have a checklist. Say, so, okay, I need this. Like I was going to the grocery store. I would go out and I would be listening. And people who have been on some of my workshops and classes before, they'll they'll recall this type of experience. Well, we're actively listening. You know, what is the medicine? I, I conducted a, a workshop like this a decade ago with with two people, and we spent four days. And each day we went out in a different direction from our base camp, east, west, north, and south. And each day we were looking for our medicine collectively as a group without speaking to each other about it, but just sensing and then coming together at the end of the day and seeing which, you know, if we could come together in that central point and say, yeah, it was this herb. And then each of us individually going out and seeking our medicine and then spending time with that plant, listening, meditating, maybe sketching the plant and if if appropriate, gathering some. So that type of approach is really what, you know, fed my apothecary. I was going out and listening and for what is, and not just quantitatively, like what's the most abundant herb out here. I wasn't taking such a you know, linear or one-dimensional approach. It was something that was, it was holistic in that I was, I was considering that, but I was also considering like what is speaking to me. And you know, uh, you know, so it was really about my relationship. You know, something that I was meant to learn at that time or that I was ready to learn or, you know, just how it how it all came together for me in that place at that time. And um, and then as I and then, you know, one or two years passed and then I realized, well, I've got to do this again. <laughs> the herbs have, are gone. It's not just a one time thing. So then it becomes more about, you know, I'm seeing differences in different places as I now intentionally go out to seek this herb. And how is this herb doing this year versus the previous year? And so I learned to read the landscape just through repetitive visits and mm-hmm. and 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 evaluate in the same way that I initially evaluated. Like, is it still appropriate? Is this still, you know, the right place and the right time? And occasionally, I get I get uh, I get messages. I'd get uh, the word that no, it's not. We need to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe do something for this place as I'm here right now, that can help foster, you know, more health, uh, more fecundity, more abundance in the future. So in that way, the stewardship, you know, uh, uh, comes out of this experience. And really, like I said, it all came out of this, um, this approach of initially observing and listening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as I listen and observe, I acknowledge that I'm changing the landscape that's there you know, from a quantum perspective, and it's changing me. And so this is essentially the first step towards healing with plants or being becoming someone who has the capacity to help another person heal with plants is spending this time with plants, ideally in their native. I spent time in gardens and I've ha- I have plants that I grow in my yard at home. To me, it's not the same as being in a wild place. Uh, there's uh, a greater dynamic that's at play in a wild place that uh, informs us on a deep level in a way that we mostly cannot fully articulate, certainly not at that time. I think I'm probably articulating things now from a decade ago that I hadn't been able to articulate for many years. I, I want to ask you to talk a little bit about foraging in a couple of minutes, but before we do you mentioned earlier that the place between Arizona and Sonora Desert is most botanically diverse place in North America, or at least one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I went to your website uh, for your company, and I was looking at different products. And what was really interesting to me is that even some of the more common products had very unique and very unusual ingredients in them. And I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about that. It almost has a signature, different signature on all the products that you create. Could you talk about those? Sure. And that's, um, as I was stating earlier, you know, this this didn't come out as a business plan. (laughs) Uh, Really poor business model in, in many regards in how I 
started some of these forms, very creative, very intuitive and um, adapted to what's available locally and seasonally, but not so easy to keep up as a product line. Um, but yes, we've, um, we've created uh, several teas that were, you know, so, imp okay, one mentioned when we were speaking earlier, the, the sleep tea, Sonoran sleep tea. That, that one came out strictly from my experience with these plants and then was then slightly adjusted towards uh, a relationship that I had developed with uh, Seri uh, herbalists in Sonora. And they live in a land where desert lavender is, is really abundant and not so abundant around here, not so easy to get to on a regular basis, especially when we're in drought years. But they're right on the coast, and even when it's a drought and not raining, they'll get the the ocean breezes in and, and the plants will still grow to be quite lush. So I was contracting with them for a while and I would, you know, pick up a number of, you know, large bags of the desert lavender from them. So I knew I would have it for, for my tea. So that was one of the ways that I was actually formulating these recipes. What can I rely upon, you know, from the local landscape in a sustainable way that I know also, you know, serves a really important niche in this formula. You know, so um, there's many things that have to be considered when you're doing a business like this. It's like, what, what can you rely upon and can you rely upon it sustainably? And uh, is it going to be functional in, in what you express this tea to be uh, good for? And then, of course, you know, is, is it, does it taste good? Right. <laughs> does it taste good? Can it even be melded, blended in some way that it'll, it'll taste good and people will enjoy it? And that's one that... I've been selling for over a decade, and I probably sell more to repeat customers than than anyone else. And I just recently gave that tea to someone who was having severe sleep disorder, um, had tried a number of medical – this is someone who works in, in the alternative medical uh, genre and was having really severe problems with sleep. And I suggested that sleep tea – and another local herb, which is our western mugwort, I call it Estafiate, a species of Artemisia. And she said within the first night, she slept better than she had in months. Very so interesting. So it's, um, it's effective as well as being you know, reflective of the local environment, which is something that I really love. And that's really the spirit that went initially went into creating the product line because I knew that there was an abundance of functional herbs, herbs that had a lot of potency and utility in our local environment, and to some extent, you know, an abundance of. And therefore, um, you know, why not, you know, put them together in a way that, you know, people will now recognize them and be willing to ingest them and it will enhance their life. And so that's, that's really what kept, has kept Desert, Desert Tortoise Botanicals alive for the last 15 years is that spirit behind it and that willingness to go out and get these plants and and continue to bring it to people. It, there are not too many you know, herbal product lines like, like that out there, I know, that are run by an herbalist. Right. It's, it's interesting, as I'm listening to you, one question that keeps coming up for me is, as a forager, someone that really understands and listens to plants, was the increase in interest in herbal medicine, how do you educate others or how can you educate our listeners on how to do this responsibly? You're someone that spent the last 15, 20 years just doing nothing but learning about these plants and really uh, carefully listening to them. I am always worried that when people are listening to something like this, they think, oh, tomorrow I'm going to go somewhere and pick some wild plants. And I don't think it's the same thing. So, Right. And of course, it's it's not. And, you know, like I was saying earlier, there are many things that I was shown or taught in my initial experiences with with these mentors that I couldn't understand at the time. And um, I, I see it's an inescapable pitfall, and it's one that must be dealt with by the individual. Now, I think there is some degree of responsibility for anyone that shares knowledge yeah, at the same time, it's about the foundation on which the knowledge is received. So um, I could say that I won't share any of this knowledge with anyone unless they've 
submitted themselves to several months training with me. And I certainly contemplated things like that in the past. And that's really where I started in terms of um, sharing the information that I had, as limited as it was, with, with a small set of apprentices. You know, three, me and three apprentices, uh, once a week, all day long, for a full year. And in that way, I would hope to really instill these fundamental concepts. But what I've noticed is that by engaging people who come with a willingness and an openness to learn in the environment in a way that helps them open their eyes and open their hearts to this true connection that we have as a living being with these other living sentient beings is a way to instill a sense of responsibility. And, you know, I could, I or anyone else could make up all sorts of rules and regulations. Don't do this when this is present or only do so much of this or, you know, only gather a certain percentage when the conditions are X, Y, Z. For me, I feel that's a little bit too superficial and can be confusing and like all rules can be manipulated to one's advantage. So the way that I've been handling it for several years now is I, through the experience, and I, I have yet, I believe, yet to see someone who's gone through the experience with me not get it when when these words are uttered. But it's about, at least to some extent, and I say that it's about honor and respect. So if someone goes with these concepts in mind and actively works to have them in their heart as they're going out to observe a landscape to gather herbs, plants, for food or medicine. And of course, this would qualify for animals as well. There's no differentiation, truly. Uh, that regardless of any mistakes that could be made, that they're still moving forward in the right way when they go with honor and respect. Me sharing that is a combination of what I've been taught from uh, indigenous elders and also from my own experience, you know, distilling this down for myself. It's, there's been a lot of pressure from participants of classes at times to, you know, for me to take responsibility for people in a certain way to like meet out these rules and regulations. This is how it's supposed to be. And I see that growing as, you know, the, let's just say the information about local or wild plants for food and medicine gets um, spread around through social media and so far and so forth. I don't feel comfortable with being a police officer, you know, policing people's actions. Um, I also don't feel like it's appropriate at this time to withhold basic information that I know a lot of people can benefit from for the fear of certain people taking advantage of it. Um, I do know it's possible. It's in the historical record that people can over-harvest plants. Um, there's another part of the argument where people say, what if everyone started foraging tomorrow? Then what? What's going to happen to all these plants? You know, there's a lot of things I could say about that. But I, one thing would be like, I would say, okay, great. That sounds fantastic. Because I think if, if people are spending more time foraging or just, let's say, out walking around in their local natural landscape and observing and connecting and touching and eating plants, it's going to change who they are. I'm not saying that too ideologically. I just know from experience that it shifts your mind. It shifts your perspective on who you are. Yeah, some people are, are quite dense <laughs> and it's going to take a while to shift and they might be more egregious in the impacts that they make. But you know, what one individual can do with their two hands in a matter of time in a whole mountainside or landscape, I think is relatively small to the greater impact that it can have with having a group of people out there, ideally, you know, somewhat guided to have an optimal experience, not just uh, an acquisitive experience. Like I'm here to acquire more goods. It's unfortunate that that's, that's happening. Yes, I acknowledge that. But for me, I think there's a greater loss to inhibit the majority of people by withdrawing information, withholding information, or um, giving excessively harsh or rigid you know, rules and regulations that you know, keep people away. Because I see, by and large, the vast majority of people really experiencing deeply healing 
times uh, being out, you know, just for an afternoon with plants, you know, and they may feel like they lose that when they go back to their normal life. But I know that that's, that's a seed within, within a person. And I think that it's one of our greatest hopes at this time is that people will spend more time in contemplation and observation and participation with nature. I love it. Thank you. This is a quick pause. At the start of the episode, I mentioned that John has a new book published last week that's called Southwest Medicinal Plants. As a listener, you have an opportunity to win the book in a giveaway brought to you by the book's publisher, Timber Press. Two winners of this giveaway will receive a hard copy. To participate, please head over to co-fee.com slash plantloveradio or find the link in the show notes, plantloveradio.com slash 54. Comment on the giveaway post of the episode you're listening to right now. What was your favorite part of our conversation? I will choose two winners when the next episode of Plant Love Radio goes live. The software allows you to support my work as well, but you do not need to be a supporter to participate in this giveaway. I look forward to your thoughts on this episode. Before we return to the interview, the winner of the last giveaway of Sager Popham's book, Evolutionary Herbalism, is Jennifer. Jennifer, please reach out to me with a quick hello so we can ship you your prize. Now, let's get back to our conversation. I know that in addition to foraging trips and conferences and workshops, you don't just do them in Arizona. You do them all over the world. Is that true? Yeah, it's been moving in that direction. Yeah, this, uh, these next few months, I'll be teaching from Southern California to uh, County Wicklow in Ireland and County Kerry in Ireland, uh, and possibly we're arranging uh, some workshops outside of Paris or perhaps in Paris um, in October as well. That's wonderful. Thank you. And I'll make sure that at the end of our conversation, I want you to include ways for people to learn how to join you potentially for some of these amazing workshops and trips. You wrote a book. Uh, the book is about foraging and foraging in Southwest. And so if you could uh, talk to us about that and maybe potentially some other resources that you could share with our listeners that are either on bioregional herbalism or on foraging. So let's mm. begin with your book and then maybe some other resources. Well, in regards to my book, uh, Southwest Foraging, that's my first published book and um, I have another book coming out soon. We'll talk about that later. But um, it's all about finding plants in your local landscape. Could be out your front door, out your back door, in the alleyways or up in the mountains or out in the fields and the desert um, all throughout the Southwest. It's a relatively broad range that this, this book uh, covers, but it's the entire state of Texas, westward uh, through Oklahoma, southern Colorado, southern Utah, southern Nevada, into southern California. Um, roughly 120 plants that can be found for food. And so I, I give pretty thorough descriptions, I feel, and uh, good photographs to help people uh, identify these plants and then talk about uh, ways to gather them and to process them for food. Um, there aren't any recipes in the book, but there are ideas on how one can prepare them as food. And so the idea for this book, of course, is as a field guide to assist uh, the individual looking for wild food plants in the region. But also what I tried to cover in, in the introduction or the initial uh, section of the book is to encourage people to have a living relationship with their environment, to observe the seasons and to go out to places on a regular basis and see the changes that happen throughout the year and really follow the, the stands of the plants and, uh, and develop relationships through one's experience and to put the book down at some point and just to go out and be with the plants. Um, as, as valuable as the book is, I recognize it as a surrogate, as a, as a secondary surrogate to having uh, a community member, a family member, an elder, someone uh, who you have some kind of relationship with that takes you out and you experience these things with. And we have these books now as a consequence of, of having lost, you know, this, this part of our community. And uh, fortunately, there's been people crazy enough like myself to actually go out on their own for some 
reason that it was unfathomable to me at one point, but then became all-consuming for a while. This is what I need to do. This is what I need to learn. And uh, and so, yeah, that that book hopefully um, is helping a lot of people accurately identify and safely prepare a variety of of wild foods for medicine. And is enriching their lives not just from the nutrients from the plants, but the experience. I feel I made a comment, I believe, in that book that someone had brought to my attention after it was published about one hasn't really lived until one is forged for their mm. own food. And I think you know that's. That's a true statement in the sense of being a human being on the earth and in the, the vastness of our, our, gene, our inherited genome, you know, what experience is there in terms of walking the earth and, you know, picking up a leaf and tasting it and smelling it, reaching up from a tree and pulling something down. We've probably all had minuscule experiences like this, but to think about, you know, this is I am gathering the food for my family to eat tonight or to eat for the next several months, whatever the case may be. Uh, I think that's something that's, um, you know, that we take too much for granted that we don't have that experience. Not having had it, we can't really miss it because we don't really understand the meaning of it. Um, Yeah, what other resources? Let me just say that there are some of the best foraging books around uh, published by Sam Thayer. He's a forager in northern Wisconsin. He's been doing this his whole life. A lot longer than me, and he is dedicated to uh, sharing this knowledge with a lot of people in both in person in his uh, workshops and classes, and then also in his books. And his books are are excellent, all based from firsthand experience. So um, it's really a, a genre changer. His his books are, and um, in terms of bioregional herbalism, I I'm not really familiar with anything written yet that um, uh, informs the concept of bioregional herbalism as I've been developing it myself. It's been a book that I've been reading to write for several years, um, but uh, after Southwest Foraging, um, I had to put down the keyboard, so to speak, for a while, and then another offer came through to write Southwest Medicinal Plants, so I've just completed that. We're actually in the design, uh, the design stage is finished, and uh, I'll be editing it this next couple weeks, and it should be ready for print by the winter, probably print it in February of 2020. So that includes some elements of bioregional herbalism. Um, given the format of the book, um, as, as per the publishers, uh, there's some limitations on how, to what extent I could go into depth on bioregional herbalism, but it is something that I, I think will be in my future for, for another book. Um, to that note, I think Sam Thayer, uh, touches on that. He's not talking about herbalism, but his relationship to to the place and the seasons, you know, it speaks to that to an extent. And I know there must be other books that that touch on this. I just don't have them, um, yeah, off the, off the top of my head right now. Uh, there are more more and more people that are integrating this into their into their practice or their classes or their workshops. But I still I, I think still by and large. Uh, most herbal training is focused towards um, herbs of the marketplace, herbs of commerce, herbs from the garden, and or herbs from another, an, an entirely different ecology and another system of medicine. When you're I, talking about uh, another system, we're talking about traditional Chinese medicine or Ayurveda or something similar to that? Yeah, I think probably the most common would be Chinese medicine. Mm-hmm. You know, herbless in North uh, trained herbalists in North America, trained in Chinese medicine, you know, utilizing Chinese herbs. And I've heard it from more than I can count, you know, people trained to some extent or another in Chinese herbalism, recognizing that it had nothing to do with plants, you know, plants that they saw or that they could visit or that they could see. It was all about, you know, the powders or the tablets and occasionally raw herbs. But um, so that that's a, you could say a criticism or, or a, from people who have been through that training, or at least they expressed the desire to to have that relationship, they feel that that missing. Mm-hmm. And just you know, speaking from my own experience, like I've even tried to grow ashwagandha, but mm-hmm. uh, I did wasn't successful, and um, I don't really know the plant at all. I've used that plant for a decade. I feel like I could go out and spend some time with a species of violet that I've never seen before, mm-hmm. and now understand this species of violet way more deeply than any other violet. I, I've worked with, and certainly way way more than than uh, 
Lithuania than ashwagandha. So for me to have uh, a plant right in front of me that I can open myself up to and spend some time with, the depth of relationship and the depth of understanding of how I can apply this herb in non-fundamental ways or non-conventional ways, uh, I mean to say, is, um, is, is that, that potential is much greater than, you know, what it can find from herbs of commerce. So, so in, in that sense, like what I'm focusing on in my classes now, so is, is less about me being able to regurgitate information that I've learn either from experience or from other herbalist books or whatever, you know, to impress and, you know, um, and exhaust <laughs> for that matter, the students in the class, you know, for them to just now just continue this, this chain of acquiring information and now, you know, attempting to regurgitate it in the time is right, but really tapping into the heart as a, as a cognitive, as our primary cognitive organ. And by spending time with the plants, opening ourselves up to what they have to reveal to us at this, at this time, which would be most pertinent to any individual at that given place and time. And then training ourselves, retraining ourselves to access this cognitive organ, not just when we're around plants, but when we're ingesting tinctures, when we're working with a client for that matter. How do I go right into the heart of the matter? What is What is really speaking to me right now, regardless of what is being said on the surface. So I, I feel in that way we can, you know, because if one learned all of Ayurveda, all of Chinese medicine, all of homeopathy, all of Western medicine, all of, you know, so many other modalities, how the, what the most common question I hear from people beginning this pathway of integrative medicine is, how do I know what to choose? And I really haven't heard a good answer for that from the rationalist reductive sense you know because it's endless you could just keep deducing and deducing and deducing but when one settles into the heart and is able to listen and tap into that then the information can be readily available right before you and it might not be the type of information that you would arrive at through deductive reasoning so for someone like myself who is an urbanite right so sometimes it's difficult to slow down enough to percept things do you have yes. like maybe one word of advice or one thing that someone who's listening to this could do to begin this conversation this dialogue yeah that's a great question thanks for asking that so most recently uh i was teaching a class called healing with wild plants in orange county and a lot of the people are in the midst of elbow to elbow uh population and traffic all day long every day we got just outside of the, the populated areas and we're in a canyon and uh, we were all guided into a place of being able to tap into and feel what was going on right there in front of us. And the way that we, the way that I helped guide them to do that was through the breath. I think the breath, I feel the breath is the simplest, most active means that we have uh, natively within ourselves to tap into what's happening with the local environment and the and, and the plants themselves. So um, I do that, you know, with minimal imagery. I try to keep imagery to, to a minimum to simplify any, any procedure. But uh, sitting down on the earth, I find to be one of the most potent ways of, of utilizing the breath and uh, focusing, uh, emphasizing the exhale. Because on the exhale is where we start to empty ourselves out. And... Um, and so a simple technique that I introduce is that start with the exhale and as we push all the air out, we just settle in that space of, of the exhale without reaching for the inhale. You know, so there, there can be a little bit of fear that comes up for some if they have difficulty breathing, like, like they need to grab for it and gasp to get that inhale. But otherwise, just sitting with the exhale and letting the inhale come in its own accord. So it's in that deeper neutral space after the exhale is finished and before the inhale begins is where our awareness can start to spread out and down into the earth. So I invite people to exhale and I'll feel their awareness drop down into the earth as they exhale. And you can feel it palpably shift with the group, whether in a circle or scattered about in a canyon beneath the trees, that now things start to sway a bit more and people afterwards begin to express how they can see you know definition 
in the environment more clearly, like it, it could see depth more clearly. Their, their awareness was simply enhanced from settling into this place. Maybe some of them can start to feel their own heartbeat more clearly, or they can feel things within themselves. Um, so that in and of itself is how, um, how I begin this process. And, and from there, is, it is as simple as observing what is as it emerges. Uh, it doesn't have to be any more complex than that. And in fact, um, we most commonly, from what I've observed within myself and others, that we expect it to be more complex than that. So we can often miss the most obvious signs and information that comes to us. So simply being attentive to what is as we settle our awareness through the breath down into the earth. We don't have to have an intent to know something. We don't have to have, I feel that as you described from, and I'm included in this as an urbanite that is geared towards producing most of the day, our, our rest and repair, our parasympathetic nervous system is a little bit overwrought by the end of the day and collectively uh, over many days, weeks, months, years, yeah, exceptionally so. So we usually need a solid three days to just get in in nature. That's what I've observed. Like people need to really fully decompress so it's just like a natural, to our baseline, a natural state of being where we can appreciate the, the movement of a butterfly's wings in the sunlight and the rays of the sun as it is emerging over the horizon and the sound of the water, um, there's, there's a depth to that to which we feel that depth. But uh, even if we just show up you know, and begin to breathe and sink into the earth, I, I, I see it happen quickly. At least we can deepen that awareness more quickly than if we were just casually you know, out and about at a campsite for, for a few days. That's beautiful. Thank you. So, John, a couple of questions to ask you as we are coming to an end of this interview. So the first one, if someone wanted to continue learning more from you and about you, how would they be able to do that? Uh, tell us the website for you and also for your company. And if there is any social media presence, that would be great as well. And my last question for you, if you have any uh, parting words of wisdom for our audience, either on foraging or bioregional herbalism or just in general. I am uh, attempting to maintain contact with my email listserv <laughs> and keep my classes updated. But they may not be updated uh, to the extent that they're actually, uh, my classes have been published already. But nonetheless, you can find upcoming classes on johnjslattery.com. And you can sign up for my newsletter on that same website, johnjslattery.com. My books are also available for purchase on that site. Uh, I do a little bit of work on Instagram and Facebook, but not much. Uh, John J. Slattery herbalist on instagram and then my name john slattery on facebook mm -hmm. um and then words of wisdom well consider going the opposite direction from where you see everyone else going and see if it resonates with your heart whatever it is that you feel compelled to do i love that absolutely love that john thank you so much it was a joy and a pleasure Likewise, Lena. Thanks again for uh, inviting me. I enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you have enjoyed this conversation with John Slattery. This episode is proudly brought to you by Timber Press. This is a publishing company that just recently released John's new book, Southwest Medicinal Plants. Timber Press is generously supporting this book's giveaway. To participate, please head over to co-fee.com Plant Love Radio. Are you listening to Plant Love Radio for the first time? Please subscribe to the podcast to seamlessly get future episodes downloaded to your device. I'm so thrilled to introduce you to many amazing guests and topics. And of course, nothing says thank you better than sharing this show with a friend who might enjoy it and giving us a five-star rating and review. Thank you so much in advance. 
The music you hear in the introduction was written by a neighbor of mine, David Scholl, and is called Something About Cat. My deepest gratitude to Bill Gilligan for this opportunity to play it. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting me once or on a monthly basis. The best way to do this is through the website where I post the giveaways, co-fee.com slash plantloveradio. You can also find the link in the show notes or on my website. Thanks again for being here today. I really appreciate you. Till the next time, thank you for loving plants and planting love. <laughs>